Devoncast from Radio X. Hello and welcome to Devoncast, the weekly podcast looking at local and regional issues in Devon, the politics, the people and how decisions here affect how we live, work and enjoy our county. I'm Philip Cham. I'm Ollie Heptonstall. And I'm Rob Kershaw. On the way this week with less than a fortnight to go until we go to the polls across Devon, we speak to residents of Plymouth, one of the most eagerly anticipated of those elections in the whole country, to ask what their priorities are. We also look at the latest in the row over wild camping on Dartmoor, an issue raised in Westminster this week, and why there's still concern about the railway line at Dawlish, almost 10 years after it washed away. And don't panic, it's just a test. We speak to a Devon Alarms expert about the test of the nationwide emergency alert scheduled for this Sunday. Devoncast from Radio X. Now, before we start this week, Philip, you're joined by a furry friend, aren't you? Tell us about them. <laughs> Indeed, um, there is a a, a small puppy by the name of Lulu that's just arrived in our life. So um, it's uh, who would have been born roughly around the same time as Devoncast was born. Fantastic. And I think it's got to become our mascot, surely. Little Lulu. <laughs> Black Labrador puppy. Is it Black Labrador? Yes, that's right. Lovely stuff. Right then, first up this week, the local elections drawing ever nearer. And with that in mind, Philip, you headed out and about in Plymouth this week. Indeed I did. Residents all over the county have been getting leaflets through their doors, maybe some actual visits from candidates wanting to be elected onto their local councils on the 4th of May. Now, we know what some of the party pledges are. We know what some of the big issues are that have been hitting the news. But what do actual voters or potential voters want from their councillors and what do they expect from the councillors that they might then elect. I spoke with some people out and about in Plymouth and asked them what's important to them. Focus on health as well as um, education system and I feel like personally in schools we need to learn about taxes and how to actually manage them properly, proper money management and everything so when we actually grow up and get a job and that we're able to put it all to good use without having to rely on everything else. I think one of the things that bothered me and all of us actually um, recently was um, with this whole palaver with the trees, uh, people made their opinion perfectly clear and they were just ignored. So I thought, um, I think being listened to is probably key priority at the minute, just being seen to be listened to. I think the new move that they've done to sort of remove all the trees in Plymouth is a huge thing that I would like to see uh, done quickly because I think removing all the trees was a, re- it was a really nice aspect and now it's a completely bland space um, and I know they, they wanna, the plan is to refurbish it but if the new council that's going to come in um, they better do it quick because I think it's made Plymouth look really awful, more awful than it already was and they need to have quick action on that aspect. We lived overseas and so we've been back in the country now for about four months and what perhaps strikes us is the what we would normally think of as basic services whether that's health social services care and things that that perhaps our generation took for granted you know um, can can we actually get a hospital appointment can we get to the doctors Um, you know I look around town and the state of disrepair one of the bridges over the train station 
um, recently had like a suicide and they didn't really do anything about that. They only put up two little signs which you can't really see. So for that I would just say maybe put up railings that are a bit higher so it's not as accessible for people who are struggling to then think, oh, it's just an easy thing to do. I think the general architecture in Plymouth is quite run down. It's very 70s, 80s. I think if there could be any sort of refurbishment in the general buildings, obviously apart from Drake Circus, which is relatively new, um, but the actual sort of um, Armada way, um, like all those sort of buildings around it, even just to you know, polish a paint will do the job rather than them looking mouldy and horrible like they are at the minute. They're not asking for too many changes then. Uh, so that's what the voters want, Philip. Does that align with what's on all the parties' leaflets? Well, the short answer to that is yes and no. Um, there are nine parties in total standing in uh, Plymouth. Uh, the Conservatives, who currently run the council, there is no mention of the trees, for example, on there. Um, but there are I've got some of the other things, jobs, um, homes, um, finances and they're all, they've been pushing the free port quite a lot in their uh, in their pledges and promises labor focusing a little bit more on crime also about house building uh, improving health services that was certainly something that came up as you heard from the voters there independence alliance that's the next biggest group uh, they have pushed the whole issue of the Armada Way and the trees quite a lot. That comes up in their pledges and how they would actually uh, restore what they call civic pride in saving as many trees as they can and generally improving uh, the city. Green Party, similar things, condemnation of the uh, the trees, the felling of the trees. They're standing in all 19 seats there. Um, and uh, they say, you know, they're... they're looking for this fairer, greener future in Plymouth. Liberal Democrats, there's no presence of Liberal Democrats on the council at the moment, but uh, they're looking to be able to change that by, say, they'll work collaboratively with other parties, uh, certainly something that... uh, some of those voters wanted. Now, uh, other parties, which some may have heard of and some not, Trade Unionist and Socialist Coalition, otherwise known as Tusk, they are saying both Labour and Conservatives have slashed the budgets and they support strikes. They're opposed to all cuts and closures and they want a much more radical way of of building uh, council homes and dealing with the climate emergency. And those are some of the bigger parties who have quite a lot of candidates standing in various parts. However, if you want the full list and you want details of what they all stand for, please go to the Radio X website. And uh, we'll have more later on about how you can ensure your vote at the forthcoming May elections. And it's worth checking out last week's podcast and our interview with Dr Stuart Fox for a more detailed insight on all the local elections that are taking place across Devon. Devoncast from Radio X. Now, it's been a busy week for Devon in Westminster with two areas receiving national attention. The first, Rob, is about the ongoing dispute over wild camping on Dartmoor. Yes. Now, if I ask you to cast your minds back to the start of the year, you might remember a court ruling that removed the right to wild camp on Dartmoor. Since then, uh, the Dartmoor National Park has struck a deal with its landowners that involves a cash incentive to allow people to camp. The Ten Tours and the Duke of Edinburgh training, however, uh, can still go ahead. Labour MP Luke Pollard and the Lib Dems Richard Ford have opposed the removal of the wild camping right, with Mr Pollard saying a Labour government would instate that right as law. There's been another development now this week after Conservative MP Anthony Magnell brought forward a bill that suggests paying landowners more money to allow people to camp on their land. 
Recreational activity is critically important to human health, but it should not come at the expense or above that of environmental or agricultural activities that are present upon the moorland. Unfortunately, in recent years, that fine balance between the three, year, three areas has fallen out of kilter. Mr Ford, however, feels that landowners should not keep receiving handouts to allow people to use their land. I'm concerned that there is a suggestion here that the public continues to enjoy the rugged beauty of Dartmoor in exchange for incentivising, and in specifically incentivising some of these landowners who, who I refer to. I worry about the precedent that it might set for other national parks. We certainly haven't heard the last on this. There's currently a fundraiser for an appeal against the ban, which has raised just over £56,000. Watch this space for more developments. Devon Cast from Radio X. Thank you, Rob. And Ollie, a long-running Devon story got a mention at Prime Minister's Questions on Wednesday. Well, it's almost a decade now, can you believe it, since that storm Dawlish destroyed the seawall and left the southwest's main rail line dangling over the waves in mid-air. A lot of work's been done to repair things since then, including a multi-million pound new seawall at Dawlish, but more work is needed to improve the line's resilience and secure the cliffs further along the line. Here's the exchange between Newton Abbott's Tory MP Anne-Marie Morris and Rishi Sunak in Parliament this week. Prime Minister's question time on the 4th of February 2015, David Cameron said he was determined to do whatever it took to fix the Dorish railway line, the only route to the southwest. Phase four risks losing part of its agreed funding, while phase five falls foul of a 10-year moratorium on new funding. The line is only as resilient as its weakest link. Will the Prime Minister commit to getting this resilience programme back on track and fully funded. Mm. Mr Speaker, we're committed to improving the resilience of this iconic stretch of railway. It provides a vital link for people in the south-west. That's why today we've invested over £165 million in delivering solutions to protect the line and I know Network Rail is continuing to develop the case for further investment and my honourable friend will be keen to feed into that. Devon Cast from Radio X. Now let's take a look at some other stories across Devon this week and there was quite the admission from the County Council that's set to agree an in-depth review to address what it calls serious failures in its governance. Describing the Council's internal position as very challenging a report says it's failing children's services and financial pressures are two main factors. The government's already issued the council with an improvement notice for its children's department, saying in December it was extremely concerned. DCC also admits there's a material threat of a Section 114 notice, an effective declaration of bankruptcy, due to a growing overspend on its special education service, but negotiations about that are still ongoing with the government. And there's been a bit of a reaction to this from over in East Devon. Yes, East Devon Council's independent leader Paul Arnotson on Wednesday that he is very worried about the report, warning of the serious effects the developments could have on Devon cities and districts. Devoncast from Radio X. Now, in case you're not aware or missed our episode a few weeks ago, you need voter ID to cast your ballot in next month's local elections. And if you don't have one of the accepted forms of ID, which includes a passport, or driving licence, you can apply for a free voter authority certificate from your local council. But hurry, the application deadline for this is on Tuesday the 25th of April, so tell any family or friends who might not have the correct ID before then. Now, this new policy is proving very controversial. We heard both sides of the argument from former Tory MP Neil Parrish and independent Devon councillor Jess Bailey a few weeks back. Here's a summary of what they had to say. 
Not only is it a terrible scheme that discriminates against younger people, but it also has been introduced far too late before the local elections. There's an established principle that you don't start messing around with rules relating to elections within the six months immediately prior to those elections. Well, this government's completely ignored that and is introducing these rules at the last minute. And I don't think people are aware of them. And I'm really, really concerned that instead of making our system more robust, I think it's actually going to disenfranchise thousands of people across the country. What is particularly frustrating about this new scheme is that there's virtually a non-existent problem. It's going to be really expensive to roll out. It's going to cost something like £180 million over a decade. And yet there's no recognised issue with voter fraud and personation. Neil, let's bring you in on this. You were elected on a manifesto that included this policy in 2019. What are your thoughts on it? I think it is actually necessary for people to identify themselves. Um, I think we we are actually slow in rolling it out and we are actually slow in getting the necessary um, information to people. But I think when I was in Parliament, um, a guy called Jim Fitzpatrick sat on my committee. He was Labour MP for Poplar and Bow. Um, and he was quite adamant that there was, in parts of his constituency, uh, quite a lot of, of, of fraud uh, during the election. So I think, you know, I mean, East Devon and probably most of the West Country probably is not a huge target for problems. But I think the trouble is when you bring in a system, it needs to be a national system. Otherwise, you know, you're identifying different authorities um, and, and targeting them. So I think it's necessary. And you can hear that full episode in involving Neil Parrish and Jess Bailey from a few weeks ago here on the Devoncast podcast site. And if you want more information on voter ID, you can go to theelectoralcommission.org.uk to try and find out how it works and what kinds of ID are going to be acceptable. Devoncast from Radio X. Now there'll be a nationwide test of the country's emergency alert system this Sunday, the 23rd of April. You might have heard it already if you're listening a few days late there'll be a loud siren like sound or vibration on our phones at three o'clock lasting for around 10 seconds and a message on our home screens as well the minister in charge oliver dowden says the new system is a vital tool to keep the public safe in life-threatening emergencies to find out more we're joined by professor of applied psychology judy edworthy from the university of plymouth who's an expert in alarms. Thanks for coming on, Devoncast Judy. What do you make of this new system? Uh, well, in the first instance, I really welcome it because I think this is a great step in the right direction. I was many years ago, I did some work with the Home Office and the Cabinet Office on alert, alerting people during civil emergencies. And there was talk of a system like this. Uh, it didn't happen at that time, but I'm very pleased to see it happening now. And I think that um, I think that the public should welcome it on the whole. Some have said that this is a little bit unnecessary. I saw an argument earlier this week that some people might be behind the wheel of a car when they get this alert and, and might get spooked. Do you see that point of view? Is it is it necessary? Well, you've got to test. You, at some point, you have to test it. Now, I think that um, I don't know the detail of the testing, but it might it might be that what's being tested at this point is the technology. So, it, what what I suspect is. The, the limit of the testing is to see whether the towers or the uh, whatever we call the the big things that send out the signals, um, whether it actually works. So the government has, has decided the signal's going out at three o'clock. So let's see if we can do that. 
Um, now, you have to do that at some point to, to check that it's working. Now, whether, whether you need to send out uh, that particular sound at a particular level of loudness is another matter. But I guess if you want people to hear what it's going to sound like when it's used in an emergency, then you kind of need to send them the sound that they're going to hear um, rather than a sort of a, a placeholder. Um, I think there is an issue about the loudness of the signal because I can't find out how loud it's going to be. Oliver Dowden says in one video it's going to be loud um, and in another video he says it's going to be at about the same level of loudness as your normal phone messages. Now because of the way the signal's being sent it's, it, it's going to override it's, over, it's going to override the fact that you've got your phone switched to silent. So whether it can produce uh, the volume that the government intends, i.e. loud, or the volume that you've got your phone set at, I don't know. And I actually would really like to know the answer to that question because, because I, I don't know whether it's going to be startlingly loud or not. There might also be a bias towards some people because this will, as I understand it, only really work on smartphones. So for... People who are still using basic ones that you, you don't use the internet, don't use you know four or five G, um, they uh, which tends to be older people uh, that may just have the simple basic phones, they may not get this at all. No, they won't get it because it only works on four four G and five G, as you say, because of the technology. It works on tablets as well, so they've got that. But um, it is only one of many bits of the armory that the government has to alert us to to uh, hazardous situations. So, for example, if there was a if there was a flood or there was a bad weather or something, that you've got the radio, you've got TV, you've got friends and neighbours, you've got other all sorts of other ways of communicating. This is just an, uh, another way. So, yes, it won't work on a on a, a lower grade phone, but it's not the only way we've got. And if there really was an emergency, we'd be communicating it like mad. We'd be we'd be talking about it on on in the media. We'd be on Facebook telling each other. We'd be, be on Twitter. I guess if you actually if you haven't got a smartphone, you wouldn't be on there either. Um, but you'd have your radio on. You'd have your TV on. Can it be hacked? Could somebody abuse the Ooh. system and suddenly go and terrify the entire nation for no reason? Well, I have read something actually. The two two things to watch out for. One of them is the um, if if you're a victim of domestic violence, then you should make sure you've got your special phone, secret phone, turned off or at least in airplane mode. Another thing that I've read is that um, a hacker or a, or a spammer or scammer may ride on the back of it, and when you get your alarm signal it there may be some other instruction that you weren't expecting like you need to phone this number now or or something like that some scam that, that's on the back of this so you have to watch out for that as well you should simply as far as i can see you should you, you should just uh get rid of the message once you've got it to indicate that you've seen it and there shouldn't be anything else so if there's anything else you should be very suspicious of it so that's probably it's quite an important message, then, really, isn't it? It's basically listen to it, hear what it sounds like, take a note of it, and then forget it. Absolutely, yes, that's exactly what you should do. This is just a test. Don't get yourself worked up about it. But if you are sensitive to noise, keep away. <laughs> don't get too close to yeah. your phone. Don't go for that. And yeah. um, I imagine there'll be a few people surprised at this, Judy, but it does happen in a lot of countries already. Yeah, I mean, they use it in quite a few countries and it works It works quite well as far as I can see. Of course, there have been some some false alarms as well. There was uh, the one in uh, 
it was either Hawaii or Honolulu where they sent Hawaii, out an alert I think, about yeah. it was Hawaii an imminent um, nuclear attack was it which actually wasn't going to happen but it took 38 minutes to 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 pull that back and then there was there was something else in Canada so that it hasn't always been good but of course that work, that might happen so um I think if you ever got a message that was suggesting something terrible was about to happen, I'd wait for confirmation before I did anything. Judy, this is, is me more making a, a or thinking a point uh, out loud rather than making a constructive point, something I do quite a lot on yeah. the show, to, to be fair. Um, but let's say this afternoon we get a message saying we were about to be hit by a nuclear strike. What exactly are we supposed to do with that information? <laughs> well, I wouldn't run immediately. I'd, I'd put the radio on and I'd put the TV on. I'd do those other things. I wouldn't necessarily believe it. And I, there is quite a lot of evidence to, to suggest that people are more or less believing of information, depending on where it's come from. And if it's on your phone, you're a bit less likely to believe it than if you've heard it on the TV, for example. So that's an important thing to bear in mind as well. It'll be interesting to see how it goes. And just a reminder, that test on will. this Sunday, the 23rd of April. That's it for this edition of Devoncast. Thanks, as always, for listening. And we'll be back again next week. See you soon. Catch the latest episode of Devoncast every Friday at radiox.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts.